0: Well, hey, good morning, Harvest, how are you doing? Pastor Cal here, and really, really hope you're doing well. I've been praying for all of you this week. And do me a favor, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Job. We're gonna be in the book of Job this morning, and I'm really excited about where we're going in God's Word together. And we're starting a new series, and it's something that we've never done before as a church. And what we're going to do over the next six weeks is we're really going to slow down and look deeply into the attributes of God. We thought that this would be the perfect moment for us as a church, to really consider and look at who God is. So the series that we're starting is called Because God Is... I am. And each week we're going to look at a different attribute of God because God is holy, because God is righteous, because God is all powerful. But then we're also going to look at how that impacts and influences our life. And my hope for this series is is that this wouldn't be just something we set our minds to on the weekends, but then really throughout the week, we would meditate and set our minds really around who God is. You know, God has given us his word so that we would know him. He wants a relationship with us. He wants to know us. He wants us to know him, and he's given us so much information about his character and his power and his might. And I think this is just going to be a really powerful time for us together as a church. And what we're going to look at this morning, we're going to start right at the beginning, and we're going to start actually right back at Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's interesting that the very first thing that God tells us about himself is that he's eternal. He's eternal in the beginning, there was God. That before there was time, before there was a beginning, God was there. And the title or the big idea of this week's message, if you're taking notes is this, is that because God is eternal, I am able to live with right perspective. And I just think it's amazing that the first thing that God reveals about himself is the fact that he's eternal before we learn anything else about God, before we learn about his character, before we learn that he is good, before we learn about his love or, or, or how strong he is, the first thing we see, the foundation that God sets for us is that God has always been. And if you think about it, that's really something that's difficult for us to get our minds around, isn't it? Like I try to think to myself, man, um, like how could God exist before time? How could there be nothing before God? How could God always be? And this is something I know growing up I would really struggle with and really wrestle with. And what I found is is the best way to understand what seems to be impossible in our minds is to understand the reality that time itself was created by God. That reality exists because God designed it Everything in our universe, the Bible says, was spoken out by God, including things that are invisible like time and space and reality. So the way that God could exist outside of time or before time is because time is a construct that God created. And man, I, I remember a, a time this really hit me in a powerful way. A, a couple years ago, we were able to travel with a group of our church to, to Israel And the first place we went to when we got to Israel is we spent three or four days in Galilee. And Galilee is where Jesus grew up and it's this major body of water. And it's where 80% of Jesus's ministry that's recorded, it happened in and around Galilee. And what I didn't realize is that Galilee is this massive body of water, but on all sides of it, it's like massive cliffs or massive hills that almost even look like mountains. So if you can picture it, it's this huge body of water surrounded by these hills. And on these hills, there are dozens of villages and you would travel around Galilee to different villages, but all of them could see the Sea of Galilee. It was the central point to this whole community. And what really took both me and Mary off guard that blew our minds away was this. It's that Galilee, it was created by God almost to look like a stage. It looks like an auditorium. And it was a stage that was designed by God before the foundations of the world to display the miracles of Jesus. When Jesus would have walked on water, or when Jesus would have calmed storms that were raging on the sea, it wouldn't have been just his disciples that would have seen that. There would have been thousands of people living all around Galilee who were witnessing the miraculous deeds of God. And I was like, man, the fact that God in eternity set up Galilee to look the way it looked, to display the miracles of Jesus, man, God is so awesome and he is so big. And, um couple things i i think we need to understand when we think about the reality that god is eternal here's the first thing we need to understand that because god is eternal his perspective is different than ours like god's perspective on the world, on eternity, on life is altogether different than yours and mine because God is eternal. And what I mean is, is our perspective on our lives and on the, on our world, it's shaped by our experiences and the time we live in. And, and here's a, a really good example. Um, Over the last couple of weeks, Mary and I have been watching a fair amount of Netflix. Have you, if you heard of that, if you haven't heard of Netflix, you should check it out, it's amazing. There's like a ton of stuff to watch on Netflix, but one of the things that we've watched we watched a documentary that was really, really fascinating. And it's a documentary on a group of people called the Satmar Hasidic Jews. And the Satmar Hasidic Jews, it's a group of people who live right in downtown New York City. They live in Manhattan in a neighborhood called Williamsburg. And in this neighborhood, there's tens of thousands of these people. And the thing about the Satmar Hasidic Jews is like they're their own isolated community. They... Um, live and and, and have their own community that's completely separated from society. The clothes they wear, it's the same clothes their ancestors wore all the way back in the 1500s and 1600s. They look completely different than the rest of the world. They um, have their own school system. They're very, very skeptical of government and, and like even things like the police, they don't involve them at all in their society. They're super secretive. Like the worst thing you could do as a Satmar Hasidic Jew would be to call the police on another Satmar Hasidic Jew. You just don't do that. You let the community handle its own problems. And what happens there is that the rabbis, they act as like the pastor, but also the police and also the judge. They have huge influential power and they don't have their own school systems. They're very, very closed off. They even have their own language. They speak a language called Yiddish, which is this crazy combination of English and Jewish. So when you hear them talk, you understand like 40% of what they say, but it's very, very different in dialect. Like it's its own isolated community. And as I was watching about how these people lived and how they operated, I was like, man, how can this be? This seems so wild that this group exists and this is how they choose to live their lives. But when you understand how the Satmar Hasidic Jews became to be, they begin to make way, way, way more sense. And here's what I mean, that this tribe of Judaism or this sect of Hasidic Jews, they formed right after World War II after the majority of their families had been wiped out because of the Holocaust. And what happened is, is these people came from all across Europe. They settled in New York, most of them without any family or any community at all. And once you understand that their reality has been shaped by this horrible tragedy, which was the Holocaust, you understand why they are the way they are. Like, it totally makes sense that they are skeptical of the government, right? Because it was the government that rounded up their parents and their grandparents and brought them to death camps and and tried to wipe out a whole generation, You understand why they dress the way they do and why there's so legalistic and why they're so holding on tightly to their history because it's the only thing that connects them to their ancestors and they're scared of losing it because they almost lost it in World War II. You understand how they have their spiritual leaders, they have so much power. Everything that they do begins to make sense when you understand that the way they view the world and their reality has been shaped by the fact that someone tried to wipe their people off the face of the earth. They've been shaped by the Holocaust and the way they view life and society and government is all shaped by their experience. It begins to make more sense. And um, I think about us and and how much we have been shaped by the circumstances and times we live in, right? Think about your family, right? How we grew up. Hasn't that shaped how we view the world and how we view marriage and how we view family by what we have seen modeled in, in our lives as we were growing up, right? I think about things how like the internet has shaped us, right? Like when I was growing up, Zoom was a word that that fast cars, it was a sound that they made, right? Cars went Zoom. Now my kids, they do Zoom calls every day with their classmates and their teachers for school. And there are opportunities available to them through the internet that I've never had the chance to experience when I was growing up. It's shaping who they are and how they view the world. You know, even the fact that my kids can FaceTime with their friends or with grandma or grandpa at any given time and see their faces, it's shaping who they are. I think about how events in our lives have shaped us, maybe like 9-11, right? And how that really kind of defined what we thought about terrorism and what we thought about Islam. And, and it shaped many of our views of a whole religion, Um, I think about how maybe even the coronavirus right now is shaping us and having to live in isolation and quarantine and the fear that that's brought on our society, how that's shaping us in ways that we might not even fully understand right now. But we are shaped by time because we live in time, but God doesn't. There's nothing, there's no experiences or circumstances that change or shape God. The reason that God is unchanging and he's unmovable is because he is eternal and he is not bound by time and experiences like you and I are. Before there was a beginning, God knew what the end was going to be. All of reality exists because an eternal God set it into motion, set it into being. His perspective on life, on death, uh, on eternity is so different than yours and mine's that we can hardly begin to even understand it. Here's the second thing that I, I want you to see though, is that in the Bible, God is inviting us to share in his eternal perspective. What God wants to do for followers of Jesus Christ is he wants to move our perspective from the temporary or or from just the physical world to the eternal. And what we're going to see in the book of Job is God is inviting someone who he loves to change his perspective. And he's trying to give Job a perspective that is eternal. So do me a favor, if you have your Bibles open, look at Job one, starting at verse six, and we're gonna pick up the story there. Here's what it says. It says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, 'Um, from going to and from on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? So in Job 1, we see this amazing story. And there's some things I really love about Job 1 when we see the heart of God. I love that it says that God is with Satan and God is like bragging on Job. He's like, have you seen Job? He loves me. He's blameless. He's walking uprightly. Like he honors me with his whole life. And I just love how proud God is of us when we follow him. And I'm wondering even now if God is saying, man, have you seen the church in the world or in America or even in West Michigan? how even though they can't gather together physically, um, they are still coming together in their houses, studying God's word and praying for each other and how the traumatic events that our world is going through has not stopped the worship of my name, that God's people are faithful in gathering together over Zoom calls and phone calls and lifting my name high and loving one another. I think that delights the heart of God and it's so cool to see in this passage. And Satan, who is a liar and and who um, is working against the plan of God, he says, well, listen, the only reason Job loves you is because you protected him. And I haven't been able to get access to him. I haven't been able to hurt him. And if you let me have access to him, he would curse you to your face, God. So God's like, okay, well, you can have access to him. The only thing I'm telling you is, is you can't take his life. And then in the preceding chapters, what happens is, is Satan goes to work and he really devastates Job's life. And if you know the story, you know that Job loses all of his wealth and that his barns collapse and there's fires and Job's children tragically die as his barns collapse. So he loses his wealth. He loses his children who he loved. And then Job's body is ravaged by illness and disease. And there are boils all over his body that that he's just in a dramatically broken state. And Job trying to figure out what to do, he what he does is he calls his friends. And he's like, friends, I need your help. I need you to help process with me what's going on in my life. And his friends, they give him some fake news and they give him some really bad advice. And they're like, Job, I think this is your fault. And maybe there's some things that are wrong with you. This is why God is punishing you. Or maybe um, God is wrong and he's not good. His friends give him bad advice and aren't very helpful to Job. And then so what Job does in an act of desperation, he reaches out to his wife. And he says, wife, I I need some encouragement. I I need some help. And his wife in this beautiful, loving moment of marital bliss says, Job, I think you should curse God and die. And Job's like, well, that's not very helpful, right? Thanks, honey, love you too. Um, So he's like in this really, really despondent spot. And he gets to a point in Job 31, and we're not going to read all of it, where he cries out to God. And what Job says in Job 31 is, is God, why are you doing this? This doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem fair. And in Job 31, he talked about, he was like, listen, I've been faithful to my wife. I've never turned to idols. I haven't lied. I haven't hidden anything from you. Even my money and my wealth and my kids, I didn't look to them to worship them or I didn't look to them for my security, but God, I always sought you. Why would you allow this to happen to me? Job has an honest conversation with the Lord. And God answers Job in Job 38. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Job 38. And we're gonna start at verse four. And God answers Job in a really, really unique way. He answers him by giving him a history lesson. Here's what he says in Job 38.4. God says, where were you? when I laid the foundation of the earth, Job. Tell me if you have understanding or who determined its measurement, surely you know, or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all of the sons of God shouted for joy or who shut the sea with the doors when it burst out from the womb and when I made the clouds its garment and a thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus shall, this shall far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed." So Job's like, this doesn't seem fair, God. I don't know what you're doing. And God responds by saying, hey, Job, where were you when I created everything? When I set the limits of the sea, when I made the clouds, when I created the foundations of the earth, Job, where were you? And what God does is he starts with big things like laying out the foundations of the world and the seas, but then he goes into very, very specific things. Look down a couple verses to verse 39. This is what he says. He says, And can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of young lions? And when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in the thicket, or who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? So he starts with the big things, but then he goes to the small things. And when he's explaining to Job is he says, Job, I'm even in charge of when the lions find food to eat or when the birds, when they go find prey to feed their babies, I am involved in that and I am providing and I am overseeing. And what God does is he spends the next four chapters going into extensive detail of how in control he is of everything. So the question is, is why is he doing this? Is he scolding Job? Is he trying to give Job his resume and show him up? No, I don't think that's what he's doing. What he's trying to do is encourage Job's heart and change his perspective. He's saying, Job, I'm in charge of absolutely everything. I laid the foundations of the world and I know when the bird flies in the air. Nothing has escaped me, I'm not unaware, I haven't been absent, I am in control of absolutely everything. And Job, you need to trust in who I am and in what I'm doing is good and righteous and I'm going to protect you through this. He's saying, Job, I need you to change your perspective just from on your circumstances. And I want you to see my eternal perspective that I've always been here, I've always been in control and I'm overseeing absolutely everything. He's trying to change Job's perspective. And here's the truth over and over in scripture, God invites us to share in his eternal perspective, right? I think about when Jesus was on earth and he was teaching a lot and what he would teach about was this kingdom, and the Jews were hoping it would be this kingdom of Israel that would be free from Rome. But Jesus is like, no, no, no. I'm talking about the kingdom of heaven, an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that is immovable. And my followers, they're going to be citizens, not of this world, but of heaven. He was calling us to a new citizenship, a citizenship that is eternal. And the way Jesus described this kingdom, he said, it's like a treasure in a field. And he says, a man finds this treasure in this field and then he goes and he sells everything he has. He gives away all of his earthly possessions so that he can buy the land and therefore possess the treasure. He's saying that this treasure is so great that all of the circumstances and things of this life, we would willingly trade to be citizens and to be a part of the kingdom of God. Right, I think about Colossians 3 verse 2 when Paul says, set your mind on things that are above not on things of this earth. He's saying, have a mindset that is eternal, that's focused on eternity. Don't let your perspective be dominated by the circumstances that are surrounding our lives right now. Romans 12 says, don't conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we think about things in a way that's different because we share an eternal perspective, which is a gift that's been given to us by God. Okay, so here's what I'm driving at this morning. You and I have a choice to make. We can view our lives through the lens of just the temporary, We can look at the circumstances of our life or maybe even the circumstances of the times we're living in and the coronavirus and we can run to doubt and we can run to fear and we can run to being overwhelmed because our perspective is just what's happening around us right now. Or we can choose to live with an eternal perspective, a perspective that believes that God is in control that he exists outside of time and and that he loves us and he's good and his character can be trusted even when things around me seem to be swirling and spinning out of control, that God is in control. So here's what I wanna do with the rest of our time. I wanna talk about three markers of an eternal perspective. What does it look like for us to live with an eternal perspective? And here's the first. The first marker of an eternal perspective is one that's marked by gratitude. And there's some of you right now who, who hate this first point that, that to, in order to have a eternal perspective, that means our lives are gonna be marked by thankfulness and gratitude. And so here's what I want you to do. Even though I can't see you right now, can you just be honest with me? And can you just raise your hand in the air that if in the last five or six weeks, gratitude has been exceedingly difficult for you, And remember, you're sitting by your family so they can tell if you're lying. So you need to be honest, even though I can't see you, right? For some of us, it's been hard to have gratitude. And you're even thinking to yourself right now, Cal, I don't have a ton to be thankful for. I I don't have my job. The the financial security I once had is now in doubt. I'm trying to navigate schooling my children, which is difficult. I don't know when this is going to end. There's so much uncertainty. It's hard to be thankful when I don't know how this is all going to play out right? It can be difficult. And one of the passages in God's word that's really comforted my heart in this season, it's in 2 Corinthians. And here's what Paul writes to the church. And you have to remember, he's writing this while he's in jail. And this is 2 Corinthians 4, starting at verse 17. Paul writes, "...for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison." as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you see Paul's perspective there? He's in prison. He's awaiting being transferred to Rome for his death. And his perspective is, listen, this light and momentary affliction It doesn't even compare to the weight of eternal glory that is awaiting us. And and so I've been thinking a lot, like what would Paul say to us right now? Like if I could take Paul from heaven and bring him back down to earth in in 2020 and explain to him what's happening economically and in our world with the coronavirus, what would he say? And, And for a man who knows what it's like to experience trials, but then having experienced the last 2000 plus years, in heaven with the Lord, you know what I think he would tell us? I think he would say, guys, don't sweat this, that what you're experiencing right now, it's hard, and there's real fear there, but this light and momentary affliction, man, it doesn't even compare to what's coming for us on the other side of eternity that there's a day coming when every tear will be wiped away, that a moment with God is going to make all of this vanish, that perfection is coming for us in a way that is real and is going to absolutely change our perspective. He would say that what we're going through, even though it's difficult, is light and momentary, and we can be thankful and have joy in spite of it when we share God's eternal perspective In the book of Psalms, David writes, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Man, what a great perspective that, listen, every day we can wake up and say, God, you've created this day. You've spoke reality into existence. You've revealed yourself to us. You love us. We have a relationship with you. We know our creator. God, help us see you in today. Help us enjoy every moment with my kids and at home and with my spouse. Let my heart be full of joy and gratitude because you've given me more than I could ever deserve. An eternal perspective is one that is marked by gratitude. God, thank you for saving me God, I understand that this isn't my home, but what's coming for me is so much better. So I can be thankful as I wait to go to my true home, which is in heaven. Thank you for being my shepherd. Here's the second one. The second marker of an eternal perspective is a life that's marked by trust a life that's marked by trust. And if we're honest, I think one of the major things that God is trying to teach our hearts right now is he's trying to teach us that, listen, we aren't in control of anything. Right. Like I think for me, like I I love to plan and I love to, you know, think through what the next month or six months is going to look like. And that's really turned all of my plans and ideas upside down. And I think one of the lessons God's trying to impress on his church right now is that we need to trust that God is in control. And the question we have to answer is is are we going to fight that and want to seize control for ourselves? Or are we going to yield and say, God, I don't know how this is gonna turn out. I don't know how this is gonna play out, but I trust that you're good and that you're in control. And I'm going to trust you and walk by faith right now. Um, Dave Harvey who's a pastor in Florida, and he's actually the leader of the Great Commission Collective, which is the fellowship of churches that we're a part of. He wrote a great blog uh, this past week, and we're gonna share it on our uh, Facebook page so you can check it out. But he uh, was talking about faith and the coronavirus, and he wrote something that I just thought was so powerful. He wrote this. He said, why, the question why, is a question that only God can answer. But nonetheless, we waste enormous emotional energy dissecting it. All Christians in this pandemic stand before the carousel of why. And we must decide whether we will step aboard for that circular ride, the one that steals our time and ultimately delivers us back to the same place. To the question of why, there is only one answer. And that answer is faith a confidence rooted in God's word that he is good and actively working in our suffering even when the answers elude us. Doubt stirred during pandemics must be met by faith, the kind that believes that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so what I wanna do right now is I wanna say something that I think is going to frustrate some of you, but hopefully be very freeing at the same time and freeing for a lot of us. And it's this we might not ever get all of the answers to why this pandemic is happening. God might choose never to reveal the why behind the coronavirus. And guess what? God doesn't owe us the answers. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. Our responsibility, what God is calling us to do right now is to respond in obedience and faith and trust him. Listen, when we stand before the Lord someday, we're not going to be quizzed on our understanding of why God was doing all that he was doing in our lives. That's going to be made known to us. Paul says, now we see things in a mirror dimly, but soon we're going to see it clearly. When we stand before the Lord, God's going to say, were you faithful? Did you love me? Did you trust me? Did you live with a joy that that was worthy of your salvation? We don't need to know the answer why. Our hearts need to be centered around, even if I don't know, I'm going to trust you. And I think we want the answer why, because we think if we can understand it, that that will give us control back, but that's a lie. We don't need to understand. We need to step into trust. And here's the third marker of an eternal perspective. It's this, it's a life that's marked by participation. And one of the things I love about God is, is that God's not asking us to sit idly by and watch what he does, but he's, act, he's asking us to actively participate in building his kingdom. That we're not passive, we're not sitting back being like, all right, God, you do what you're going to do and we're going to wait for heaven. But he says, no, 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 that we are working to advance the kingdom right now. We're called to be representatives of the kingdom, that the people that we come to uh, in our lives, the people that we interact with, that we represent God to them, that our faith and our joy and our trust should be made evident in all of our interactions. So here's the question. How's that going right now in your life? And a couple of examples. Um, Do your neighbors, do they see your hope and trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ right now? in your interactions with them, even as limited as they may be? Is there joy in your heart? Is there love? Are you saying, hey, I'm praying for you and we're trusting the Lord in this, or or, or are you hiding that away? I think about how we're interacting with others on social media. And it seems right now that all of us have more time to maybe be online and there's so much, you know, articles going around and and debates and, and arguments happening over government and shutdowns and quarantines. And listen, In those spaces, are we letting the light of our hope in Jesus Christ shine through? Or are we giving into fear and argument and anxiety? Like how are we representing God with how we interact online with people? Listen, the last thing this world needs is more arguing and fighting and fear and anxiety. What the world needs is a firm foundation that's built on the trust and the reality that God is eternal and he's in control. And I'm wondering in how we interact with people on Facebook or on social media, are we representing Jesus Christ well? I think about with our small group, you know, are, are, are we there for each other? Are we checking in? Are we encouraging each other? Are we building one another up? One of the greatest ways that we advance the kingdom of God is we build one another up in love. The Bible says, Jesus says that the world will know that we're his disciples by how we love one another. Are you doing that? Are you pressing in to your family in Christ? Or is this isolation causing you to isolate yourself from the family of God? I think about our families. Are we modeling the patience and kindness and joy of the Lord to our children? And when we do fall short and when we do fail, are we quick to repent and are we quick to show humility? Are we quick to seek forgiveness? Or or is our pride causing us to isolate maybe even ourselves emotionally from those we love most? Listen, it feels like there's been a lot that's been taken away from us and there's a lot we can't do right now. But one of the things we absolutely can do is be participating in what God is doing in the world right now. And he is trying to build his church. He's trying to grow our faith. And he is asking us to participate with him in advancing his kingdom. Listen, the the world is broken and there's a lot of fear, but our hope is not in this world. Our perspective is not just what's happening right now. Our hope is in an eternal God who has promised an eternity for us with him in paradise because of Jesus Christ. Let that be the hope that fuels our hearts this week. Let's do this, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. I thank you for how um, you just explain to Job who you are and how great you are and that you have formed all of reality that every mountain, every stone, every tree exists because you have called it by name and that you are sustaining the world by the word of your power, that you are involved in all of this and God help us trust that you're good, that you're with us, that you're here. Let our hearts not be troubled. Let us love you, let us seek you, let our hearts be filled with joy and gratitude and peace. God, would you give us your perspective on this? Would you help us? We love you, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.